Well, let's come together in prayer. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. It does give us guidance and provides for us uh, the knowledge that we need in order to live and serve. And we thank you for these words of the Lord Jesus that we look at today as he addressed the church at Thyatira. May it be uh, that we hear his voice and the things he calls us to do that we might also do and the things he calls us to avoid we might also avoid. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been working our way slowly through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and we come to the fourth of the seven letters sent by the risen Jesus through the Apostle John to the seven churches of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. The first, if you remember, was the church at Ephesus whose diagnosis from Jesus was that they were in the throes of backsliding. And then next we met the church in Smyrna, a godly, faithful congregation who endured sharp and prolonged and painful suffering. And they needed to be told to persevere in the face of coming and intense persecution. Then last week we looked at the message from Jesus for the church in Pergamum. And we noted how this church had been faithful to the truth but had a basic flaw of tolerating false teaching. And it was because of this that Jesus gave them a summons to repent. This morning we arrive at the middle church of the seven, the fourth church, the church at Thyatira. Of all the seven cities listed in these chapters and these verses, this city was by far the least important. It was neither a major religious centre, it was not a regional political capital. It was simply a busy but minor trading colony noted for, if anything at all, the number of trade guilds that provided the structure for civic society and business life within it. And yet of all the seven letters written to the seven churches, this letter to the church at Thyatira is the longest and maybe the most involved, which reminds us not to evaluate the importance of a church by the importance of its location. The measuring stick that Jesus uses is clearly not the same as the one that we would use And this church that he wrote to apparently had a significance in his eyes despite the unimportance of the city in which it was found. In many ways, the message that Jesus sent to the church at Thyatira is the mirror image of the message that Jesus sent to the church at Pergamum. It seems that the same problems with false teaching and the associated sexual immorality were also dangers here. But this time, whereas the believers at Pergamum were given their first warning, this church gets a final ultimatum. 
Here's what happens when you stop listening to the warnings that Jesus gives. Now, listening is a skill that we all need to cultivate, but sometimes we fail to deploy. Isn't that the case? I read a story about a stadium announcer in Ireland who had to announce to the crowds the numbers from a licence plate of a car that was blocking an exit to one of the stadium parking lots. And he did. He repeated it repeatedly, but the owner never came forward. After 30 frustrating minutes of repeating the car's number plate into the microphone to no effect, the realisation finally dawned it was his own car. He learned the hard way that it's perfectly possible to hear all the information we need to hear, even state it yourself with clarity and precision, but still not hear it, still not be listening. There's a difference. Later in the year we'll come to Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower. There's a difference between hearing and listening. And so it seems that this church at Thyatira had fallen into this category of deafness, of not listening. And so this time this warning from Jesus is given, the stakes are much, much higher. Jesus comes and speaks to these believers, presenting himself as he does in verse 18, with incisive, penetrating sight, seeing clearly to the true nature of things. He has eyes like flames of fire. And he speaks as king, sovereign dominion, whose rule cannot be shaken, described by his feet like burnished bronze. That's the startling imagery by which Jesus portrays himself in this letter to this people in this place. If they hadn't been listening before, clearly now he wants them to take notice. And so it's a solemn letter, it's an urgent letter, it's full of warning. Although we will also see it's not without marvellous encouragement and gospel hope. And I explore this message with you this morning under two headings. First, notice the contradiction that Jesus found in verses 19 to 21. The contradiction that Jesus found. There are two things that immediately can be noted as you examine the life of the church in Thyatira. On the one hand, in verse 19, Jesus approved of and commended this church for the encouraging record of spiritual progress. And yet in verses 20 and 21, on the other hand, uh, Jesus placed his finger upon an issue that was causing a tragic pattern of spiritual regress. Here's a church that's going forward and going backward at the same time. Both of these things seem to be coexistent in the life of the congregation. Let's think about the progress Verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. 
That's a remarkable description of spiritual fruitfulness, isn't it? That latter expression. It's not just that they have a history of love, sorry, a history of love and faith and service and endurance. No, they have a present expression of love and service and faith and endurance. They were growing. Unlike the church back in Ephesus that had lost its first love and were being called back to do the works it did at first, this church had works that exceeded their first works. Which, by the way, is part of the definition of what perseverance and patient endurance in the scripture is. It's not a static defensive condition holding ground not retreating we've guarded our space no patient endurance and christian perseverance means enduring in the pattern of faithfulness and fruitfulness to which we are called we keep on doing those things we keep on in growth christian life is a life of growth here is a church who's Later works, their latter works, exceed their first. I wonder if that could be said of us. Are we doing more with the gospel than we once used to? I wonder if it can be said of you. Are you doing more with the gospel than you once used to? Are you showing more fruit of the Spirit than you once used to? Do your latter works exceed the works you had when you first believed? Are you perhaps stagnating or supplementing your faith? Peter calls us to supplement our faith in 2 Peter 1 with virtue, with knowledge, with self-control, with steadfastness, with godliness, with brotherly affection, with love. These things like building blocks will continue to add Quality to our witness and testimony for Christ. Have you settled into a comfortable groove or even slipped back some and diminished in your zeal for Jesus, your devotion to his cause? Can you imagine the response of the people when they hear what Jesus has to say to them as he commends them in this way? High fives all around, lots of back slapping. Oh, we're doing great. But only... For a moment. Well, there's an issue in the way. And this point of contradiction that Jesus puts his finger on, that right there alongside this record of spiritual progress, there is this tragic pattern of spiritual regress. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. See, when a church was going forward, as this one was, you can be sure that the evil one will not be inactive. He will attack either from the outside, as in the case here, from the inside. There was a false teacher in this church whom Jesus called Jezebel. That was not her name, I'm guessing. But Jesus gave her this name to tell the church that she's dangerous. 
Jezebel, you may remember, was the queen of the northern kingdom of Israel, married to King Ahab. You can read about her in 1 Kings 16 and 21. And like Jezebel of old, this woman's teaching and influence were evil, leading God's people into error and sinful practices and lifestyles that were clearly commonplace in the first century, but were never compatible with the holy living that Jesus expects from his people. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians 3 and 4. And so here we find that Jesus' indictment of the church in Thyatira is not simply that these things being taught by Jezebel were sinful and wicked and wrong, which they were. Rather, the issue was at Thyatira that they tolerated this woman. They made room for her. What I want you to see is the terrible judgments that the Lord pronounces upon them are the final fruit of the toleration of the believers. And toleration is the root. They tolerated her evil influence. The church tolerated her sin. They tolerated her deception. The church would not draw boundaries. The church would not practice loving, pleading, but firm and faithful discipline. And so the warnings that Jesus gave to Jezebel and to her followers were not being heard. They gave them time to repent, he says, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. See, toleration of non-biblical teaching is not love, it's sin. Tolerance for some things, yes, because of love, is good. But tolerance of error is the opposite of love because it reveals a lack of love for the honour and the glory of God. Parents know this as they raise children. Maybe as grandparents, you know this too. Those who tend to be unruly can be hard to handle and every parent has those moments when the question is, do I love them or do I discipline them? Do I allow it to pass because of love or do I discipline them because it needs to be done? Sometimes it's tenderness and compassion that drives parents to withhold appropriate discipline. We don't want to put those boundaries that are in place, we don't want to push them too hard because we don't want to push our children away. We don't want to lose them because we're being harsh. That's our fear. But without that discipline, which seems to be contradictory to love, then a bigger and greater problem can arise, can't it? That's exactly what happened in Thyatira. When the church failed to act to remove those who were teaching error within their ranks and instead made way and allowed room for sexual sin and idolatry and tolerated Jezebel. And so it's hardly a surprise. When Jesus issued his warning and his word, giving Jezebel time to repent, and she would not, like a spoiled child who's never heard the word no, Jezebel and her followers would face consequences. This pattern of spiritual regress, the failure of the church led 
to still deeper rebellion in the life of the followers of Jezebel and would lead to dreadful judgments from his hands. And these two patterns seem to coexist in the life of the church in Thyatira. Going forward and going back, progress and regress, moving forward, falling back, success in bearing fruit, doing more works than before, but failing to follow through on discipline, where discipline had to be exercised. And it's a festering contradiction that Jesus notes and cannot long continue. Whatever progress we might make in love and service and patient endurance, everything will be undermined in the end and our witness in the world ruined if we willfully tolerate those who think it's possible to claim the name of Jesus as Lord while living contrary to his, to his will. This was the contradiction the burning, searching eye of Jesus noted. Secondly, from verses 21 to 29, we note the consequences that Jesus foreshadowed. Just as there were two streams in the life of the church in Thyatira, there would be two sets of consequences. There's a word here of judgment for the followers of Jezebel. But countering those are a couple of words of reward, promises of greater blessing to those who overcome and who persevere, who haven't succumbed to the teaching of Jezebel. Let's think first of the word of judgment in verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. Take note of the severity and the solemnity of the warning. Sickness, tribulation and death are the consequences that Jesus is going to mete out to those who persist in mixing his truth with pagan lies. Is that the image of Jesus that you have in mind this morning? And we ought not try to push these consequences away or explain them away. Think of Acts chapter 5. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. Suddenly struck dead in the midst of the church family for their disobedience. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here he is, the one with eyes of fire, executing temporal as well as eternal judgments in accordance with his good pleasure. In the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis tells of a conversation between Susan and Mr. Beaver about the person of Aslan. Mr. Beaver says to her, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan, I had thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. And here we find that in relation to Jesus, far from being cute and cuddly and no threat. 
It is never safe to presume upon him with the eyes of fire. And then verse 24 to 29, along with that solemn word of rebuke and warning of coming judgment, there's a couple of words of promised reward and blessing. Those who have not compromised themselves are called to hold fast to what they have until Jesus comes. He wants this church to have much more than a five-year plan. He wants them to hold on until he comes back. That is, don't stop holding on. And they were to do this, that is, hold on fast, remain faithful to him all the way to the end. There's no permission given to slow down or to slack off or to let up being faithful. It's until I come, it's to the death, it's to the end. That's the battle cry of the church to the call of Jesus until he comes. That's the finish line. That's where we're going, to the end. But notice that Jesus will reward perseverance and endurance like that in two promises that he gives. For a start, see how he promises that the one who conquers and keeps my words, my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and it's when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This remarkable promise draws upon language and ideas of Psalm 2, which speaks about Jesus' own victorious rule over the nations. That Psalm tells us that Jesus is the great King who will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But here, Jesus applies these words to his people, to you and to me, who trust in him. It's to the one who conquers, to us, because we are united to him who receive authority over the nations, to rule them with an iron rod. And this authority Jesus has received from his Father is an authority that he gives and he shares with his church to exercise in the world. What a word of encouragement this must have been for these believers in their circumstances, excluded, ignored, marginalised and possibly persecuted. To them, Jesus promises that they will reign with him. And so to you and I, we're given this challenge. Endure. Take it on. Stand up, stand out for Jesus in the home, in the business, in the classroom, at social events, at chance meetings along the way. Sure, be wise and winsome, be gentle and appropriate, but don't back down and don't retreat. We're going to reign with him. And the church has the keys to the kingdom of God. And we can open and close the door to the kingdom of God through the gospel. And then on the other hand, verse 28, his other promise, to those who are faithful, he says, I will give him the morning star. One commentator says here, the morning star usually appeared at the darkest point of the night, about two or three in the morning. 
It usually emerged at that point when the night is as dark as it's going to get. When it does appear, there is no sign of the dawn and it appears very faint and small at first. But when it is seen, you know that the night cannot withstand the dawn. It's just a matter of time until the dawn wipes the night away. Chapter 22, verse 26 of Revelation. And Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. So do you see what he's saying to this church as they struggle to keep going and ensure their latter works exceed their first? He's giving this promise and guarantee that no matter how dark the darkness becomes, it will not ever conquer and vanquish the light. There will always be the assurance of a swift approaching dawn that will herald, of course, the day of his appearing when the long night shall give way to forever to a bright and glorious day, when his rule, which at the moment is real but invisible, becomes visible. Well, what then? Clearly in these verses we find that what concerns Jesus about the state of his church is inconsistency. The church can't make progress in one area while willfully tolerating disobedience and going backwards in another. And so the church is always called to take heed of the warning outlined for us here. We ought not think that the one who died to save us does not have a holy jealousy about the state of his bride. We ought not think that because he is in heaven and therefore distant and not visible, that he does not care about the state of the church. He does. And if we turn our backs to him and if we insist on our own way, he will, as we heard last week, he will come against us and remove the lampstand. So it's his way or the highway. It's his way or else. And what does his way look like? It looks like endurance and perseverance because it's those who endure to the end who will be saved. Yes, it will be hard. Yes, we may be outnumbered. Yes, there will be opposition and trial and toil. But you and I have to endure to the end because the one who says, hold fast to the end, also promises to give himself to those who do. And he warns, there is no salvation if we ever let go of him and fail to prove to be one of his own. Are you listening? Have you heard? But are you listening? Will you hear the warning and heed it? Let's pray together. 
We give you thanks, Heavenly Father, that your word is truth, that it calls us to obedience and faithfulness and holiness, that you show that you care about the state of the church, that the Lord Jesus has those eyes of fire that see beyond externals. And we would hear this rebuke. We pray that our latter works would exceed our first works, that our own spiritual growth would continue, that we would not flag in zeal, that we would not become lazy and indolent. And we pray that as we hear this warning about false teaching and tolerating false teachers, we pray that you might help us ever to be on the lookout, ever to be watchful, ever to be careful. Thank you that you have given yourself and you promise to give us the morning star, the Lord Jesus himself, always in our darkest times to bring us the greatest of hopes as we look forward to the day of his appearing. Give us endurance for the long, long haul ahead of us. Help us every step in the one direction to continue to serve you faithfully and so receive the promises that Jesus gives. We pray for the church throughout the world and ourselves that we might hear and heed the warning he gives. We pray all this in his name.